Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, licensed professional counselor. In today's episode, I have my first returning guest, Sibby Zuckerman, who's a licensed professional counselor here in Seattle, Washington, where this interview is taking place. Sibby is a private practice psychotherapist, and she also offers speaking and training, and she's also a supervisor of other counselors. More on that, but welcome, Sibby. Thank you. It's so cool to have you in my house. Why, yes, I really appreciate you having me in this charming craftsman house where you're currently installing some type of urban garden. (laughs) Yeah, my front yard is a constant uh, creative uh, venture of mine. Yes, it's very nice. And so, yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show. And we've got I mean, people can listen to the first episode where we talked about Buddhist psychology as science of the mind, which Mm -hmm. is an earlier episode. Uh, But today, uh, you introduced a totally different topic to me as a possible discussion topic. Well, I wouldn't say that it's totally different, first of all, because I think it's connected and I think we touched upon it. And I think I even said in that podcast, oh, we could do a whole podcast on this. Yeah. And here we are. Ah, good point. Um, Which is self-compassion. Ah, yes. Which to me is tied very much in with Buddhist psychology and philosophy. So, self-compassion. This reminds me of there's sort of a self-care movement going on, sort of in social media and some of the articles I've been reading. But self-compassion, I think, goes a little bit beyond the consumerist part of self-care. Can you explain a little bit about what you kind of see self-compassion as? Sure. Um... And I have feelings about the term self-care as well. I, It does feel very consumerist, so we can sort of go down that road too. But um, uh, self-compassion is basically just the um, learning the ability to observe your experiences. So it's connected with mindfulness in this way, of being able to observe your experiences with curiosity and kindness. And what I often say to clients is that you can't be curious and judgmental at the same time you can't those things cannot coexist so inherent to curiosity is a sense of non-judgmental compassionate awareness and to be able to look at yourself with curiosity and kindness um is a way of being and it's not uh i mean it's 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 active but it's when i think of i guess when i think of self-care i think of make sure that you're getting enough sleep and make go for walks and this and that and these sort of very specific tangible actions that you're doing versus a way of relating to yourself and your experiences which is what self-compassion is so i'm hearing a few things there not only a relationship with yourself but it also sounds like a learned something you have to learn if you've grown up in the western culture which i've grown up in the western culture and a lot of the first half of your life is receiving criticism and correction for what you're possibly not doing right in the family unit or according to that family unit or the culture or society or school or a workplace. And we're, and I believe, especially in America in the United States here, we have kind of a hypercritical culture in some ways uh, of young people. And so when I've met a, a lot of clients or just people I know, self-compassion is not exactly something that comes up naturally in conversation. I've, I've seen people, well, this is a constant conversation. Somebody will say, 
oh, I just can't stand that I did this or this happened or I didn't I, I didn't get the job I wanted or I didn't do well enough with this project. And then their friend will say, well, quit beating yourself up. It's like we're always beating ourselves up. What, do you, what are your comments about that? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because one thing that I've noticed is that I think a lot of people think that being self-critical is a motivating tool. And I think that connects with what you're saying. Like, that's how they were raised. And they think that somehow if they're hard enough on themselves, that will be the motivator to do better. And what I've often found, and when I talk to clients about this or ask them about it, I say, it doesn't seem real motivating to me. Like, if Mm. you're constantly dumping on yourself, how is that giving you the energy to motivate you? to do better or to to move forward in some way it to me just gets you more trapped in that sort of uh sort of spinning in your mind and it takes you out of the moment when you could be doing something that would benefit you or make you feel better to be able to move forward so i do think that culturally yeah people see self-criticism as a motivating tool absolutely And I think when it gets pointed out, at least with my clients, people start to realize that it actually has hindered them more than helped them. But you have to bring that into somebody's awareness. Absolutely. And I think, so people are saying, well, if I don't criticize myself, well, I might never improve. But I would say that you definitely can improve in whatever you're doing if you use self-reflection. Exactly. Self-reflection is more balanced and it's acknowledging maybe where your weak point is, but also acknowledging your strengths. And okay, what do I need to work on now? I can focus on that if I'm trying to do something. But there's an attitude shift. And I think it's difficult because you said you get spinning in your head. And I was just thinking about emotions, about how self-criticism can lend to this sort of energy of anger, Mm -hmm. self-anger, self-loathing, self-hatred, comparing yourself to others in, in an unhealthy way. And I was thinking about that. Well, and think and, about that. Yeah. Like, if that's what you're focusing on, then you're not focusing on your life and what you want to bring into it, right? Mm. If that's what you're focusing on, then you're that's where you're spinning. And I like that you use the word reflection. And like, how do you learn to reflect and be honest with yourself? Because this also isn't about like butterflies and rainbows and I'm perfect. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not about like never seeing that you have a fault or you've done something wrong. But it's like, how do you relate to doing something wrong? How do you relate to having a fault? Do you feel like a piece of crap because of it? Do you berate yourself for it? Or do you recognize it, have compassion for it, move through it, work on it without all that added baggage of shame and all that other stuff that I feel like gets in the way? Absolutely. Well, I love that you're saying that. And I think, yeah, like not everyone was in the in the West was grown up with self-criticism as the primary, but I do just believe it's a dominant attitude, which is why I brought that up. And, and then you said spinning in your head, which makes me think, well, you're maybe there's some energy going on in your body, but you're really getting trapped in your head, which means you're not in the moment as much. And if you're not in the moment, then your body isn't feeling what you where you're at that day. Mm-hmm. Thus, much more difficult to have gratitude for where you're at and how far you've come in your life and what you've gotten through in terms of um, maybe you've gotten through a big trauma or you've had you've overcome an obstacle and having that and acknowledging that so in a way part of me is thinking the self-compassion is almost as if you're saying how would i want to treat someone 
like that I'm very close to and is a very dear friend of mine, I, I would want to have compassion on them, but be honest with them and authentic. But then, and so I think some of us have, you know, some of us, whatever, some people can identify with that of having a close friend and really being compassionate and being there for them when they're going through a hard time, but also being saying like, hey, that wasn't nice the way you talked to me or whatever happened in that situation, but not kind of being accusatory. So then it's interesting because then the difficulty of teaching the self-compassion, at least from my standpoint, is it just seems like a default to criticize ourselves We where we treat other people. I hear this all the time. People say, I treat other people so well, but uh, to myself, I treat myself like crap internally. Mm-hmm. What, are your, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think some people, I mean, just the way you said that, what it made me think of is it becomes sort of an identity mm-hmm. for them to treat themselves that way. And they get kind of latched into that identity of um, being unhappy with themselves. And they kind of almost like awash themselves in that. Um, And so I do think it can just be patterned and it can be really hard to break out of. And I, one of the things that I focus a lot on is in the noticing of judgment, not to judge the judgment. Mm -hmm. Because I know when I first started meditation practice, um, I was taught the John Kabat-Zinn definition of mindfulness, and I, it's not going to be verbatim, but it, it's something along the lines of mindfulness is a particular way of paying attention in the present moment on purpose and non-judgmentally. And I remember when I was in my first silent retreat and I was sitting there and I noticed judgments coming up and then I'd be like, oh God, what's wrong with me? I can't stop judging myself. And then I'd get really frustrated. And what I started to realize was that I was like judging myself for judging myself. Mm. And I got stuck in this trap and I was like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, okay, so I'm noticing the judgments come up. What do I do with that? And then I was at this conference, some mindfulness conference, and I heard, um, I'll give her credit because I remember who said it, Amy Saltzman, um, who's a mindfulness teacher, um, she used the term kindness and curiosity instead of um, self instead of non-judgmental awareness. It was it was about paying attention with kindness and curiosity. And I went, oh, okay, that makes more sense to me. So when we notice the judgments arising, I think it's a really good opportunity to sit with that too. Right, because mm-hmm. you were talking about, I'm kind of looping back, but this sort of idea of it being a cultural thing and people, you know, getting sort of hooked into this self criticism and learning to to be able to be with that and see it hmm. with a, with an open heart and and feel the suffering that it's causing. To me, that's the first step in being able to work towards self-compassion, which is why, to me, it is really connected with the Buddhist concepts and with meditation and mindfulness, because learning to sit and be with even your own judgmental mind without reacting to it or getting caught up in it, but being able to observe it and feeling the weight of the harm that it's causing you, whew, that can be really profound to sit with that. And then you have the moment of saying, is this what I want to be doing right now? Mm. What is, is this, is this serving me right now? I love that because that does sound like self-compassion. 
yeah. in a nutshell. And I think for our listeners who aren't really familiar with mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and then the Buddhist psychology concepts, it might be a good idea to learn more about that. That's not the total emphasis of this episode, but just to understand some of the tools, because I believe you're talking about that meta-awareness of being able to observe your thoughts. And what you did there was, when I when I heard was sitting with the compassion, er, sitting with those judgmental thoughts as self-compassion, it takes time. Oh, yeah. And it takes really trying to disengage from an emotional roller coaster and just let yourself feel what you feel, but yeah. ob- observe it. So you're paying attention on purpose, like you said, but also with curiosity and kindness, which is an attitude. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an attitude that helps you see, I believe, kind of living between the opposites um of where where we're at meaning that part of us might feel very critical about what happened or what we did or what we said or something we didn't achieve and then another part of us feels loving uh you know forgiving so how do we sit in the middle between that tension or how do we develop one of the ends to that so that we can have the full breadth of the experience instead of dissociating or denying or something like this how do we and so when you fully from my interpretation in my mind this is sort of visual but if i fully go all the way to letting myself tell myself the real negative things but i'm observing it with kindness and curiosity i'm acknowledging that i had those feelings and i had those thoughts but in a way that it's like okay it's okay i'm not i don't need to identify exactly with this and so that's a concept I think I want to bring in real quick is identification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, identification, which is a central concept in, in Buddhist philosophy and psychology, really connects with that sort of observer stance. Um, because when you can get some space from your experience and observe it, you're less likely to fully identify with it. So when we're looking at the concept of what I would say, like non-identification, Mm -hmm. honestly, is that it also connects with the concepts of impermanence in that there is no stable self. There is no um, part of this life that is permanent, including our our feelings or our thoughts or Mm. any of our experiences. Mm -hmm. They're all, um, if we allow them to be, we tend to make things more permanent than they need to be because we have a hard time letting things go. but in the reality of things, when we can learn to see something as an experience instead of as part of our identity, um, I think, yeah, I think that connects really well with the non-judgmental awareness or self-compassion because it's like, all right, I had that experience and I can move through it. And it doesn't mean that I am this thing. I am, you know, because if, if we're being critical, then we fully can fully identify with that and say, look, I'm a, you know... I'm a bad person or, you know, I'm always going to be a failure or see, I did it again. Look, 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 you know, and we can get caught up in that identity. So I'm glad that you brought that up because I think it is connected. You know, in, in Buddhist psychology, there's this, or Buddhist, Buddhism in itself, there's the concept of no self. Um, and that doesn't mean that like you don't exist. It just means that there's no stable self. Like we're always evolving and changing if we allow ourselves to. I mean, we can get trapped, and overly identify with an experience and get stuck there. But the world is still happening around us and we could be moving with it. 
And, the, and when you mean when the world is happening, I also want to insert a few words and see if you agree with this. I think the world is adapting, the world is adjusting, the world is evolving, and the world is is going through cycles. Um, and so something I've discussed in a recent podcast about nature-based therapy was that we are part of nature. And the ego, which is also possibly something that helps us get through life, is is wanting to sometimes forget that we're part of nature and we go through cycles and we go through adaptation, we go through our own evolution and that it's a, it is a healthier state to be in, to be aware of what, of our adaptation. And so if we're, if we understand that we're adapting, just like the trees in your yard, if you cut off a branch, what happens? And if you, you know, during certain seasons, what happens to that tree? And during a drought, what happens to that tree? Things are always changing and the tree is trying to adapt. Just like that, we're trying to adapt to circumstances we're in, to relationships, to um, things going on in our body, things going on in our environment. So in that way, if we can have that viewpoint to understand that and i believe it may be a shorter jump to the non-identification and being able to observe things as they are in the moment but i do think a human trait is that we're we get scared of change even though change is constant and so there's that when we get stuck uh usually i mean unless it's a trauma happening to us a lot of times maybe it's fear or, or something else that or an expectation that was missed and we, part of us, can't accept that. It's hard to accept. And so then we, we'll, we'll try to dig our heels in, right? And so then we can identify. And it can get worse, if, especially if you are thinking a lot of negative thoughts about yourself. You can start identifying with yourself as a certain, like, I'm this instead of I'm mm-hmm. going through a period where I feel depressed or I'm going mm-hmm. through a time in my life where I feel angry or I'm going through a time where I feel unsettled right now. I feel very unsettled. And it, and so identification, and that's a, you know, a concept, like you said, from Buddhism, uh, non-identification rather, um, I think is an important tenet. And I, I believe that people can, they can learn and, find new ways with practice of how to do that so that you can have self-compassion. Mm-hmm. I think like one of the most common conversations I have with people, because I think so many people do this and you know, if a, other therapists are listening, they may not agree with me here, but the questions that are non-questions that people ask themselves, like, why do I always why do I keep doing da 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 da? Why am I always da da da? Why do I do this? Why 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 why? And what um, what I say in my practice is, when you're asking yourself why am I doing this, you're not really asking yourself that. Mm. You're berating yourself. Mm. You're saying what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. I messed up again. Like if we're being honest with ourselves, and I'll ask my clients, like, what are you really asking? What are you really saying to yourself when you ask, like, why do I blah blah blah? And so I'll say, what if, so I think that's an inherently judgmental stance to say, why am I doing this? And sometimes I'll joke and say, let's just blame your mother and move on, right? Like, (laughs) that's like the joke. Because it's like, okay, so let's say it's mom's fault. Then what? Then where do you go with that? So I'm not a big fan, and all my clients know this about me. I'm not a big fan of the question, why? I don't think it's a helpful question. What I often say is, what if instead you said, 
what's happening right now? Mm. So instead of, because asking why am I doing this, it's full intellectual, right? Ah, That's a completely intellectual question. It takes you out of the moment and it has you in analyzing mode. And as anybody knows, we spend way too much time there as it is. Analysis paralysis. Analysis paralysis. (laughs) And so what I'll say is instead of trying to analyze yourself to death, be with what's happening. Ask yourself a different question. Ask what instead of why. Can I just be with what's, what is happening right now? It's much more open. And I talk about widening your gaze, having a wider gaze and a wider stance of observation and opening up yourself to what your experience is. Because to me, then that's where the answer is. And it's a much more compassionate way to move through whatever's happening, to open up your experience to it and say, okay, so what is happening right now? I'm noticing maybe, um, you know, a tightness in my stomach. I'm having chest tension. I'm feeling sadness. Okay, can I be with that? What is that? Not why am I feeling this? That's a, that's a mind game. But hmm, let me just be with what is happening. And can I, and to me, that is being compassionate because you're allowing yourself to fully feel. And then you know what? If there's a why, it'll make itself available to you in that moment because you're opening yourself up to it, to the experience of it, instead of just thinking and analyzing it. Because when you're thinking and analyzing it, you're disconnected from the body and from the experience. I hope that makes sense. I love that. I love that. I was just thinking about, so, I mean, I think some listeners who are not, have not been exposed to this sort of speech before would probably say like, how, how in the world would I do that? Because I've been taught my whole life in school. Why did this happen? Explain this theory, explain this, explain that facts, facts. Well, facts are because, uh, here's my fact. I grew up around an angry parent who was confused. So now I, when somebody challenges me, I get angry and I feel confused and I make no sense. And then they ask me, what is wrong with you? So, that, but so how does that help you in the moment when you're angry? Exactly. It does not. I don't so, really think it does. I mean, I think as an intellectual exercise, sure, yeah, we can make those connections and it can be helpful to say, I had that experience and I can have compassion for the childhood version of me that went through that and I can sit with that and, and, and feel kindness towards it. But in the moment when it's coming out, we're here right now. So what's happening? It's dissect. Well, right. What I was right. Exactly. Where I was going with that is like, that is a keeping me trapped in mm-hmm. some sort of older narrative. Instead of saying what is happening right now, right now I am this old, I am in this room. I'm having an argument with this person. I feel this way. And I feel that they probably a projection. I feel like they are doing this to me or whatever sort of story I'm having. But if I'm opening up to a larger experience, that's automatically, it's keeping me in my body. And I can say, what what is happening right now? And most and, likely and it's fear-based. Right. It's It probably is fear-based or it's worry or I'm unable to communicate with this person or I'm unable to understand what I'm saying or I'm ashamed that I raised my voice mm-hmm. at this person and now I'm internally berating myself. But you said it perfectly, which is the why will come later. Mm-hmm. The why, you probably already know the why intuitively, but it's it's not it's not what you need. What it's you not going to solve all your problems. It, well, right. It's part of the puzzle, but it's not... What you need right now is to be able to say, what's going on? Okay. 
right there, that's mm-hmm. giving me a pause between stimulus and response. It's giving me, instead of a reaction, because a lot of times when we feel like we've done something wrong, it's usually a reaction. It's not a thoughtful response or a mindful mm-hmm. response. It's giving me that pause. And I like that because it is it is a way of looking at things from a broader perspective or a, what would you say, widening? Widening, widening the view, of the gaze. Widening the mm-hmm. gaze. And it gives you space to be a person, to be an impermanent imperfect body yeah mind imperfect um growing learning adapting human and i do think and that i brought up the school thing i've always always taught this we have to find out why we have to find out what adds up to what we have to find out the facts of this um and there's value to that in academia of of course like we need our brains we need to analyze and think but it doesn't need to be all the time. Oh, exactly. And I for was everything. Well, I was thinking about this. There's, and my, I guess, mindful schools gets involved here because I was thinking about when I was a kid. We all, people's favorite teacher, was n- usually not the one who was totally focused all on facts and learning. They were focused on the experience in the classroom and how that teacher made you feel and how that. And I remember just a very. I don't remember what grade I was in, but a very compassionate teacher and everyone loved her so much because she was about, she was of course about learning and growing us, but it was all about how are we doing today? And like, we put our heads on our desks and she would say, okay, I don't, this is actually way before mindful schools. This is like the early nineties, but I re, I'll never forget this. When we were getting kind of like out of control as a class, she'd say, okay. And she'd turn off the lights and everybody would go, oh, <gasps> And then she say, okay, everyone put your head on your desk for five minutes. This is not a punishment. This is for everyone to just take some deep breaths and think about it. And then if somebody would go like, you know, or make a noise, she'd say, okay, now you can come up and sit next to me. And she'd bring them up there, not in a shameful way, but she'd like put, I remember, I think, I don't know how she got away. She'd like put her hands on multiple child's backs. And I think they liked it, but it was also kind of like, okay, you you can calm down too. And then I remember the rest of us going, oh, I don't want to go up there. So I'm going to be quiet. And then after five minutes, and she probably maybe went to six minutes, but it felt like an eternity to a, I think, third There's grader. a minute and a half. Or whatever I was. <laughs> right. I mean, she would have us do this, but she always do it by the lights. She'd kill the lights and we'd be like, oh my gosh, she's serious this time. But I remember feeling relaxed and maybe ready to learn. And I think it was a little reset. And so I'm thinking, I, I can't forget that. And how she and there's other great teachers I had as well, but that is just I think it was like widening my view. Like, why are we all acting like? Of course, we were just feeding off each other and acting and you know louder and louder and bickering. That's whatever. what kids do. Yeah, yeah, we were kind of feeding off that energy, and she's like energy reset, yeah. and and it worked. And people really respected her for that. Well, there's an intuitiveness to it too, right? So yeah, that's before we had like the mindfulness revolution. And as you know, like my big start in mindfulness was in bringing it to kids in schools. And yes, I was trained with mindful schools out of California starting back in like 2013. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think anyone that was drawn to that field, there's an intuitiveness about it. Like we're all brought to this for some reason. Mm -hmm. And it's because you feel it like, oh, there's something missing here. We need kids need to learn how to pause. And learn reflection. But I want to go back to a question that you asked, 
which is when we're talking about self-compassion and non-judgmental awareness, how do we how do we learn how to do that? Yes. <laughs> so I want to I, I want to swing back that to that. That is a big question. And inherent in the process of learning it is doing it. And here's what I mean. Because if you're not used to doing it, it's hard and it's frustrating. And in those moments when things are hard and frustrating, what's our inclination? To judge ourselves. What a wonderful opportunity to face that again and again and again. So just like a meditation practice, it's called a practice for a reason. We have to keep practicing it. And each time we notice, we're practicing noticing the judgment and saying, oh, what am I going to, how am I going to relate to this in this moment? And so what I say to clients who are often like, this is so hard, or I didn't realize how much I'm judging myself. Like, I'll do easy little just self-awareness practices with clients before we even talk about meditation. Because some people, let's be honest, they don't want to meditate, and that's fine. And not everybody has to meditate. So I'll do more almost like informal practices of just this week, I just want you to notice when judgments pop up. Just see what you notice. You don't need to react to them. I just want you to just kind of note, huh, oh, look at that. That's a judgment. And then again, and I always reiterate, don't start judging yourself for judging yourself. See if you can be curious. So we talk about the curiosity component. See if you can be sort of curious about what's happening in that moment. And what I've heard time and time again is people coming back and saying, wow, I had no idea how often those thoughts, like things that I didn't even realize were judgments. I'm starting to realize they're judgments because they're so automatic. Um, and then once they get comfortable with that, I'm, I'm constantly pointing out when I notice folks making judgmental comments that they don't even realize are judgmental. Mm-hmm when they're making some sort of classification or labeling of something. And I'll be like, huh, did you notice, did you notice what you just said? And they'll be like, oh, wow, yeah, I was just judging myself again, wasn't I? (laughs) And we can, and then exactly, we laugh about it. So you take, whoo, you take the energy out of it and can laugh about it and get some space from it and see it. And that's how you learn how to do it. It's not, and this is why, you know, and we talked about this before we started airing today about the whole CBT thing. Oh, right. And CBT is fine. Like, if it works for you, great. And I use some basic paradigms of CBT in my practice just for people to understand how their thoughts are affecting their emotional experience and how that affects their behaviors, right? So just from like a psychoed, just kind of seeing how that process can work. But um, my, my issue with CBT is that you're manually trying to change your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's inherently judgmental. If you're trying, if you're saying, nope, you shouldn't be thinking that, that's bad. That's a bad thought. Not that any therapist would say that, hopefully. Right. <laughs> you know, we try to use words like unhelpful or whatever. Distorted. Yeah. Well, I don't like that word <laughs> no, either. No, but that's in the book. Exactly. Yeah. But, or irrational. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use right? that, but I'm just saying it's in the, yeah. Well, yeah, irrational manual. thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a pretty judgmental thing. It is. And, and then it makes you feel, I can see someone saying, I'm having irrational thoughts. Oh, I can't stop. But Look, why? I'm so un- irrational. I'm, right. It's, it's a label. Yeah. It's another label. So, being able to laugh and say, okay, yeah, I went there. I see that now. That did not feel good. Huh. Just be with that. That's how you learn. And it's a life journey. That to me is the other difference. So CBT is usually like, here are the tools. 
and you can apply these to everything. My approach is more, I want to help you learn. I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm not going to tell you what's irrational or whatever. I want you to learn to be with that yourself so that I'm helping you find a new way to relate to your experiences. I'm not telling you how to relate to them. I think that's there already. If you're paying attention, the answers are there, like we said earlier, right? If you can learn to be with stuff. And what I say to my clients is my goal is to put myself out of a job so that anything that you face down the line, it's about how you're relating to it because bad stuff's going to happen. And you're going to have, quote unquote, irrational thoughts about it. And that's fine. What, you know, those, those moments are going to happen. Like, I have them. And I, I'm full, I, I self-disclose a lot with clients. That is my style. And I do it because I think it shows compassion to be, and again, this is just my style as a therapist. But by normalizing the human experience of suffering and how all of this stuff is part of that human experience, I think is vital to help people learn to be more compassionate to themselves. Because I don't want to be seen as a guru who has it all together and never judges myself and floats and levitates and whatever. That's not helpful to my clients. I've struggled with self-judgment. I bring my awareness to it. I move through it. And I'm learning every day how to relate to my own life. So to me, it's a journey. It's not like, and I'm sure you have this too, or any therapist listening, clients coming in like, just fix me, right? (laughs) Like, just fix it. And I always say, sorry. And I actually do have a little magic wand in my office that my sister made me uh, a few years ago for my 40th birthday um, as a joke, because my sister's a therapist too. And I always joke, you know, I've got a magic wand, but I can't guarantee that it's going to work. And this isn't about where we're getting to it's about learning a new process of being right i love that and that's that's compassionate too because otherwise it's like i need to get to this place to be happy i need to get there Mm. i need to be this thing going back to like identity or whatever like i need to be this thing and it's like no you're fine just as you are can you just be kinder to that person that's fine just as you are right i love it and and open yourself up to the journey well and you're talking about journey just being with it all of these things have to do with experience and experience I've found in therapy is one of the biggest and best tools we have as therapists is if we can get a client out of their head and into an experience in our office and into an experience in their life, they start just adapting and coming up with all sorts of creative ways to help themselves. And like what you said, puts us out of a job, which is a whole point. Mm-hmm. We, we have more people calling us. We want to help them too. We also want to honor the people we're working with, but we want to help them find their way in the world. And it is not, you're right. I mean, I mean, let's just take, for instance, my, I love EMDR, which is my, one of my big things. I've seen EMDR help people with symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and other major depressive anxiety symptoms in a very short period of time due to the processing. However... Okay, so now they don't have this large symptom and trigger every time they hear this word or see this color car or um, have this thought about whatever. Okay, that's great. But that, okay, now you still are in your life. So you're not maybe 
suffering from that symptom as much. But now we're into what you're talking about, which is, okay, uh, how do I now go about my life? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do I just have to come in for EMDR every time something bad happens? Hmm. You know, or do I learn a way of being with myself? Mm-hmm. And so EMDR, I love it because it's experiential, but it's really, it's a difficult thing. It's not for everybody because you're going to really dark places and reprocessing those events or feelings. But I found that you can utilize EMDR as a hybrid to bring people into the feeling in the felt sense. Mm-hmm. And what I hear you talking about with experience and being is being able to be in that felt sense that's hard to describe on paper, which is the full, is as full of an experience of being human as you can bring into a room or bring into your own awareness. And I believe that's what meditation helps us do. And I know not everyone's into meditating. That's not even what this podcast uh, podcast today is about. But bringing in that that larger perspective and then having that relationship will all if we can work on that it's a journey but it's a it's a journey with self-compassion and like you said bad things are going to happen so how do we react and i know that's for me it was a very difficult and still is a difficult thing to work on uh which is when something really bad happens in my life which will continue to happen my whole life here and there something will happen how do i react to that with compassion for myself and the situation instead of some old pattern of whatever it is something that's not very um useful let's say i'm judging myself but but I well, mean, what i was gonna say yeah. is even if those old patterns come up and arise that's fine too because we can learn to notice that and then there's an opportunity there that's what I exactly. Right? That's what I'm trying to say. Exactly. It's yeah. not that I don't want to. It's not that I can eliminate. It's like we don't eliminate our complexes. That's what like Jung said. We don't eliminate our complexes. We just start to grow out of them. But it doesn't mean they're gone. It doesn't mean because mm-hmm. we're an imperfect. We're we're molded from so many different things. I don't expect those complexes to be gone or those fearful thoughts that I have when something doesn't go right. Mm-hmm. But I I'm trying to move into what you're saying. So I can help my clients too, which is, okay, you just felt this way about that situation and that made you react in this manner. What is going on right now? Yeah, just being with it. Okay, wait a minute. Sitting with it. Wait a minute. And that that helps me be more into my body and more into my acceptance of what is happening. Because, well, going back to the tenet, apparently this is coming up and this is in my last podcast too. We said there's the old Buddhist tenet of life is suffering. Mm-hmm. And that everyone suffers and that's part of being alive and accepting that actually, I don't know if he's, is this in Buddhist, I don't know if this is in the text, but from my Jack Cornfield readings about Buddhist psychology, it's almost like by accepting that life has suffering in it, we don't suffer as much. We just suffer when we suffer versus suffering because we got upset that we suffered. Well, yeah, I mean, and that comes, that connects with like the idea of like acceptance mm-hmm. or allowing, right? Once you can accept that there is suffering then you're not fighting against something that quote unquote shouldn't be there, right? So if it's if you're not supposed to suffer, then you're gonna fight against this idea of suffering and that creates more suffering. It shouldn't be like this, right? Mm. Why is this happening to me? You know, that is a fighting against the natural occurrence of suffering, which creates more suffering. So if you can allow and say, yeah, okay, so I'm a human being, I didn't do anything wrong necessarily to create the suffering, but suffering is a natural part of the human experience. Now I'm open to it. I'm not fighting against reality. When you fight against reality, you're going to lose. 
and you're not it's not going to be a pleasant thing because you're fighting an immovable and that's why it creates more suffering and suffering and just for a broader real quick clinical interpretation fighting against the reality of what has occurred can lead to symptomology depression sure. anxiety and all those things and not to say it's easy to accept it it's very much not easy to accept some of the things that have happened to us in our lives but um, it can lead to all sorts of problems um, with non-acceptance and all sorts of states and not just those but other ones uh, other states that we can get into mm-hmm. so oh yeah I mean I like the word allow more than accept I've kind of like noticed as I progress in my own journey as a therapist and with all of this that there are things that I tend to like that feel more honest and maybe more compassionate than other words and there's something about this idea of just allowing things to be how they are I don't know there's something about the word accept mm. it's sort of like there's like a begrudgingness to that right. I mean, it's like maybe you it's have. just in my head like well, it could be from- all right I guess I'll just accept <laughs> it right it could be from the context of the word yeah. You know, people are like, you need to accept this. That's yeah. like, like so something in our culture. I get what you're saying. I'm now use the word allow like a lot more. Like, mm-hmm. can I just allow this to be what's happening right now? Can I just let this be the reality? Because it is. And can I open myself again, that wider stance and gaze of, okay, so if this is how things are right now, can I just be with that? And then allow myself to have whatever feelings I have and move through it and not judge myself for having the feelings and um, when I'm ready to come out of it, then maybe there's something I can do to make it better. Or maybe not. Maybe it's just about continuing to allow. Because that's the reality. I love, I love that because it's in tune with what's actually occurring according to observation in the natural world, which is mm-hmm. coming back to we are part of nature. But I love that part of allowing because the way you've phrased that terminology, because I was thinking about like when something when we don't want to allow an experience to occur Mm -hmm. i think sometimes it what you said we move through it that's a concept i want to talk about real quick because what i think that if you have a larger viewpoint even when you're not in a bad place and you're in a good place but also when you're in a place where you're triggered or upset the fact that you unless you are about to die you will move through it part of life is that we are adapting and we're growing and and your time will pass. And so how do how do I move through this instead of not allowing it? Because I do think when something really catches us off guard and hurts us in some way, what we're I think when we don't want to allow it in my mind, one of the this is just one of the many things that can happen is that we believe something about it. We believe that we 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 have a very closed and narrow view of what this means because of maybe the suffering we're in. Um, that when something happens and we have to allow, and we're trying to allow it to occur, we have resistance against that because it's like, oh, this means that. Does that make sense? Like we're, yeah, we're almost what, predicting. But then I would um, argue that you're not actually being with it. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying yeah. that's the fear of being with it. Because the fear it, that yes. keeps me out of it. And so to get into it, I have to remember a larger perspective, which is something I don't know what is going to I love I don't know. I like saying that all the uh-huh. time. Um, I don't know what this means. My fear makes me think it's going to mean that I will never blank. My pain makes me feel like I will never recover from blank. Well, and that's about noticing the thoughts as they're arising and saying, oh, okay, so those are the thoughts that I'm having. 
if I stay in my head up there with those and spin on them, whew, this does not feel good. I feel terrible. Right? I have a knot in my stomach. I'm feeling more anxious. I'm feeling whatever. Okay. So if I'm living in my head, spinning on this stuff, then I'm not being with the experience. So it's about learning to unhook the mind. So I came up with this metaphor because I love metaphors. To me, it's like, for most of us, when we're in that state, it feels almost like you're soaking in a bathtub. The, the, the plug is in the drain and you're just soaking in it. And you don't know where you end and it begins, mm, right? Mm-hmm. You are in it. And that's usually because we're stuck in the spinning of our thoughts and the judgments about the experience. And a lot of people think that that's reflecting and it's not reflecting, <laughs> but people do. Yeah. And so breaking apart, like, no, that's actually, you're not actually figuring anything out by doing that. You're spinning and it becomes autopilot and then your emotions take over and you've lost yourself. So the first step is 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 increasing the awareness to say, oh, wait a minute, look, I'm in the bathtub. Ding! So that awareness to notice what's happening. Uh, what's happening right now? Oh, I'm in the bathtub with my thoughts. I'm really stuck. I'm spinning. The next step is gaining the tools to learn how to take a step outside the bathtub to be that observer and to be able to look at what it is that you were just soaking in and get some space from it to see it with then the final goal to be to unplug the drain and learn how to take a shower instead of a bath. So I can have these experiences and I can feel them, but I'm not getting stuck in them. I'm not plugging up the drain and holding them. I'm letting them, the experiences happen without soaking in it. So moving through, it's a lot easier to move through a shower stream than it is a large body of water. Mm -hmm. And so you said I'm, you said, would you say I'm letting go of something? I'm letting something come off of me as well, you said, when you're... No, but I like that too. Okay. <laughs> but you're letting the water... Yeah, it might you're engulf letting it move you. down. Like it's doing its right. thing. It's, 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 you're getting wet. You're not staying dry. So you're still getting wet. But it's following its natural course. And so like when you're talking about EMDR, which I'm going to be honest, I don't have any experience with. I mean, I'm familiar mm-hmm. with... Um, sort of the the general paradigm of it but i work with trauma from more of a somatic place i've had Mm -hmm. some training not extensive i'm not gonna up the training that i have but i have some training in somatic experiencing and so in somatic experiencing we're learning how to track our nervous systems and allow things to move and shift so often you know with like se work you'll have people orient in the office visually um, and then tune in to their inner experience and notice, and people will often find something tight or doing something in their body. And then I'll just say, I want you to just sit with that and just notice, is it changing? Is it moving? Is it intensifying? Is it, and when people can start to track and notice what they notice is, oh, that feeling can arise and then it'll actually die down on its own if I let it. Okay. If I can observe it without getting hooked into it or spin on whatever's happening, if I can just be with, let's say, um, what they would call like an interoceptive experience, like feeling like your nervous system, what we start to feel is the movement 
that mm-hmm. is inherent. And this is what Peter Levine was really obsessed with, like with trauma of, you know, how can these animals who are being, who are prey to other animals and all the time, how come they don't have PTSD, you know, mm-hmm. like, and it's because they have space to move through the experience. It, humans, if you're in a major car accident or whatever, and you go through this major trauma, and the ambulance comes pick you up, they're going to strap you down. It's all very intense. You're probably going to wake up strapped to something, feeling, f- f- and then they're going to give you a drug to calm you down. And we 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 get trapped because we don't allow ourselves like these negative quote unquote negative feelings. We're always trying to avoid them and push them down instead of whew. Can I learn to sit with that discomfort and move through it? And get to the other side of it. I love that metaphor and that whole explanation. And I think that is really encompassing. I mean, this is much larger than the definition of self-compassion. Yeah, we've kind of gone on a tangent, but it's still. But but I think it references because this, if people are wondering, there's many ways to have self-compassion. But if you want to learn how to enact it and experience self-compassion, We've definitely outlined some ideas for you to start with. And for some people, this is definitely something they want to learn from a practitioner. You want to be able to, you need a space to come into that's safe for a while to work through some things and learn some of these skills and practice these skills with a a professional, a professional counselor. And then for some people, they might actually just pick this up on their own. And, and also, start working at it. Go ahead. I do want to give a plug to Kristen Neff. Oh, okay. Because she's really big in the field of self-compassion. And she's like, you know, famous. But I would say if you, if you have more interest in self-compassion, um, Kristen Neff is a great resource. She's got videos online. She has books. I've learned a lot from her. Um, and she's really, as far as like some of the quote unquote, I hate the word guru, but sort of gurus in the field, she's definitely one of them. And so that would be a place to start as far as reading and stuff like that. She's very, very good. And I love that concept because part of the experience of being human uh, is the awareness that you we only know what we know. Mm-hmm. So you just mentioned opening up a book. Somebody is listening to this podcast, seeing a practitioner uh, listening to somebody talk online in another format or going to a conference, having conversations, this is opening you up to something new if mm-hmm. you're ready for it. And then if you're, like you said, ready to allow and, and a little bit practice, sort of paying attention, focusing a little bit on not even if it's not meditation, like you said to your client, I just want you to notice mm-hmm. thoughts. And that's just all I want you to do. It's interesting because of the insights they come back with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is something we're talking about, which is a large concept. And there are a lot of ways to get there and a lot of creative things you can do. So this is just one roadmap. And I appreciate you sharing some of your expertise about this with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, it was really good to see you. And it was really nice to be able to talk about this topic because, you know, we've talked about this before as you move through this field and you get more years under your belt you know, you start to sort of figure out more and more who you are in this field as a therapist. And the concept of self-compassion found me. And the more I do this work, I feel like it becomes a core piece 
of every interaction that I have with clients. And it's become a much more uh, focused part of the work that I do. And I think it's a really important topic. So I really appreciate the space to talk about it. And it's always really good to see you. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad to be able to visit and hear about this. And before I go to the ending, I want to say as a therapist, if you're out there trying to find your identity, it's okay to go through different phases where you're not really quite sure what you want and go to different trainings and read different books. But like you said, all of a sudden, this concept found me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's an important topic. I believe it's an important topic too. And so now I think just trusting the process of things, people hearing this, I know that you're full of, <laughs> of clients right now, but I think people are going to find you that need to hear this. And mm-hmm. then if they hear this and they can start incorporating that, that's going to have a, a ripple effect on the people they interact with. Which is, yes. And that's a big part for me with the self-compassion piece is that the more that you can notice and be compassionate with yourself, I do believe that it helps you be more compassionate in the world. And... um I think that that to me, it's about helping people be them their best selves and how that impacts like that three feet of space around you and the place the the space that we have control over and how we're engaging in our lives with other people. Because I do think that it's contagious. And I do think that the energy that we bring into the world affects other people. And this is 2019, we're recording this. And I do believe that the world could use some more compassion I agree on self and others so I appreciate you sharing that and I'm glad that I have an opportunity to visit Seattle once again one of my favorite cities and I think we're going to go enjoy some excellent Seattle cuisine so thank you so much for showing me around all right good to see you Paul Thank you for listening to another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. For more on Sivy Zuckerman and her work, all of her information is in the show notes, and I definitely suggest that you check it out. If you're interested more in what I'm doing, you can also find out more about me at healthforlifegr.com or check out the show notes. Until next time on the Intentional Clinician. I'm wishing that you have the ability to have compassion for yourself. You are worth it. If you're a clinician like me, you're probably looking for a great electronic medical records program. If you are, then I recommend Simple Practice. If you're interested in trying out Simple Practice, I have a link in the notes of this episode for a 30-day free trial. And if you utilize the link I have provided and decide to subscribe, this podcast will get a small referral fee. I thank you in advance. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest. While these opinions are based on literature that they have read and their experience in the field, they should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is 1-800-273-8255. 
If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with Paul or any of the clinicians at the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by calling or emailing. The information for this is on healthforlifegr.com or paulkrauscounseling.com. Thanks for listening to the Intentional Clinician Podcast.
Thank you the space. 